More and more, politics is crashing against public opinion. We are not reflecting public opinion. We are in a complete crash between the elite politics and public opinion. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Columbia economics professor Jeffrey Sachs says we're living in a dangerous time. The country's volatile, he says, and so are our politics. In today's show, he delves into why the benefits of globalization aren't being equally distributed, how the Republicans' efforts to undo Obamacare are misguided, and why the U.S. needs a ministry of planning. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. Today's talk is from Spotlight Health. The three-day health conference is the opening segment of the Aspen Ideas Festival. It was held in June in Aspen, Colorado. Jeffrey Sachs has advised former UN Secretaries General and was an advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders in his run for president. Sachs thinks we're living in an age where, with technology, we can choose to do the ultimate good or create unimaginable disaster. We have the power to end poverty, transition to a low-carbon economy, and protect the Earth's biodiversity. And yet, he says, we're held back. But you asked me how, uh, how, how anxious, yeah. how distressed am I? <laughs> because in the midst of all of this, we have literally, and I mean literally, stopped thinking. Progress is held back, he says, by policy decisions in Washington driven by powerful interests rather than thinking. Sachs continues his thoughts on stage with Steve Clemens. Clemens is Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic. Here's Sachs. We are absolutely in a perilous time. We are unstable uh, in our country. Our politics are unstable. The president, to my mind, is probably a cipher, not a reality. Uh, but it means that there are coalitions of forces all around that are uh, without uh, guidance or purpose. And uh, we are, therefore, in a very dangerous time. And look, you can't imagine a more beautiful place than the one we're in. And when you spend a day in Aspen, you can't imagine a better life, actually. And our country's made all sorts of wonderful things. Not for everybody. We could do a lot better on that. But the fact is, we are at risk of squandering all of it because we are not thinking right now. We're not grateful for what we have. We're not trying to think hard about how to protect it. We're mm -hmm. just on an absolute lobby-driven, relentless, unstructured, and dangerous path. So well, Jeff, annoyed thank, thank Sunday you. morning, that's where I start. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing with us what you really think. Uh, I, I wanna, you're, you're one of the, the, the acknowledged great economists of the world. You're a problem solver. You help um, uh, inspire and drive uh, the Millennium Development Goals and, and, and thinking about these issues. But as I think about what's going on both inside the country and between the United States and the rest of the world, there seems to have just developed this zero-sum competition between everyone. That if you help people in need, you're somehow losing something. That if you do something for uh, Africa, that's somehow robbing uh, folks at home. And you've always been the economist that said, the sum is greater than the parts. And I'm wondering what you think, if you were to get, be given the task today, not of just uh, complaining or documenting this dissension in the world, but you're going to be given the task of actually fixing and drawing people back with some sort of economic alchemy, uh, you know, in terms of driving people to understand the, 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 the choices they have in a different way. What would you do? You started with a great quote of uh, Adam Smith, and it is uh, one of my favorite uh, parts of the Wealth of Nations. Uh, and in that uh, little section, worth uh, looking up, uh, and you can Google it because it starts uh, the discovery of the sea routes to America and uh, of the passage uh, from Europe to the East Indies are the two greatest events in the history of mankind. And Smith goes on to say, because it, it's globalization, by mm -hmm. the way, it's the first time in 13,000 years since the 
Beringia uh, fell underwater uh, at the end of the last ice age, that all of the world was interconnected. And Smith says that ought to be a good thing. So uh, the idea of positive sum economics uh, goes back to Adam Smith, uh, not mm. to me. Uh, the idea that you gain from trade, the idea that globalization is a good thing. But Smith makes an, the key point. He says, but because of specific circumstances at the time, globalization did not benefit all parts of the world. At the time that these sea routes were discovered, the military advantage was so great on the side of the Europeans that they were able to act with impunity and bring to disaster the conditions of the native inhabitants of the East and West Indies. And then he says, but over time, there could be a rebalancing of power such that uh, a mutual fear by mutual strength would lead to a mutual respect of all for all mm -hmm. and enable everybody to benefit from globalization. Okay, what are the lessons of these two pages of the Wealth of Nations? First, trade and globalization are potentially good. Second, there's nothing automatic that they benefit everybody because the first thing that I used to teach in trade at Harvard, which I taught for 20 years, is that there are, a, it's a larger pie, but the way the pie is sliced also changes, so there are winners and losers from globalization. Third, in Smith's uh, beautiful uh, explanation, he looks forward to the day when the laggards will catch up. So that's humanism. Right. That's the Scottish Enlightenment. That's what I just regard as human decency, that we're in this for everybody. We're not in this for a narrow part. So let me take the US just as a starting mm -hmm. point. Has the US gained from globalization? Enormously. People here are enormous beneficiaries of globalization, all of us, in two ways. One is that it's been good for us as consumers. Second, for most of us, either we're in business or we own shares of businesses, and it's been a huge benefit for the value of uh, American companies and for stock market capitalization. I'm talking about a 30-year perspective. Mm -hmm. We've made a lot of money, and we've had a variety of benefits as consumers and wider projects, uh, products. By the way, the best anti-malaria medicine in the world is made by the Chinese. A Nobel Prize uh, in medicine uh, was given a couple of years ago for that. Uh, that's what happens with globalization. You, you get benefits from all parts of the world. Does that mean there are, that everyone in the US has gained? No. It is absolutely the case that uh, Trump's voters in the Midwest have lost by and large from globalization, because they are competing against lower wage workers abroad. Does that mean globalization's a bad idea? No. But it does mean that winners should compensate losers. We should have a decent society where the gains, which have been enormous, are broadly shared. Instead, what's happening is two things. One, Trump told a bunch of ignorant stories, I would call them lies, but with him, I don't know. Uh, could just be simple-mindedness. One is that he told these people, yeah, you're suffering. Your problems are Mexican rapists and Muslim terrorists and Chinese currency manipulators. He didn't say, I've won big. You've lost a little. I could help you. That's the true story of globalization. Our problems are internal to redistribute the benefits so that everybody wins. He didn't say that. That's the true, honest, by the way, second day of trade theory, that the gains are big enough to compensate all the losers so you have what economists call Pareto improvements. No. Second is the policies that they're pursuing are exactly the opposite of what's needed. Cut taxes for the rich, slash the benefits for the poor, exacerbate the crisis. That's what this health bill would do, for example. And I can tell you 
a thousand percent, there's nothing in it, I'm going to get a better trade deal. This is bullshit, right. to use a technical term. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, a a Jeff, Sunday morning technical Jeff, term. I know, that, I know that you were an advisor to Bernie Sanders in the Sanders yep. campaign. And one of the things that was obvious to a lot of us observers when Sanders was running and when Donald Trump was running is that those were the two candidates that somehow resonated with people who felt just left behind and, and screwed. I remember I interviewed uh, Vice President Biden before he left office. And one of the things I was interviewing him about international affairs, but he said, I said, Why, does it shock you that Donald Trump is... Uh, uh, being celebrated as sort of the, the, the savior for the common man. And he says, you know, the problem is the Democratic Party. He says the Democratic Party has become an elitist, snobbish, snobbish uh, party. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm just interested in your own critique because you've laid a lot on Donald Trump, a lot on others. But I'm interested in, in the fact that you did have a competition. And I don't know, maybe the Russians fixed it, but let's put that aside for the moment. That, that'll be... Uh, that'll be tomorrow's uh, topic. But, but you know, in the, in the broad session, when people have the choices of the kind of vision you outlined, a choice was made in the country. Uh, and, 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 and like it or not, Donald Trump uh, is there today uh, in the office. But some say that it was, it, it was the, the fact that Hillary Clinton rented a $100,000 home in the Hamptons before she started her campaign, and that sent a signal that I'm not really about the people in need. Well, I think uh, I go with Arthur, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., uh, who said uh, famously and wrote famously that uh, American politics moves in uh, big cycles. Uh, and uh, the cycles are between uh, the private purpose of wealth and the public purpose uh, of uh, the common good. So the good. gilded cycle. Right. And so he right. talked about the gilded age at the end of the 19th century, followed by the progressive uh, era. And uh, interestingly, uh, for Mike Myers and, uh, uh, and uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, which was kind of the quintessential progressive era institution, uh, founded in 1913, it did more in the 20th century for human good than probably any other organization on the face of the planet, I would say. Uh, I mean, it made public health. It made, it made a, public a, a health. It made and, yeah. a thousand things right. uh, good. But the idea was uh, that after the uh, age of uh, this great wealth, there were such inequalities that uh, that's, remember, William Jennings Bryan, we will not be crucified on a cross of gold. He lost all his elections, but that was ushering in Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive era. And then after World War I, we went back to uh, uh, the Roaring Twenties and the crash. And then we had a politics from 1933, March 4, the New Deal, Basically, I would say uh, to the end of, uh, uh, arguably to the end of the Nixon administration, mm -hmm. actually, because uh, Nixon also continued a lot of these policies. There was basically a, a, a politics of broad middle class public good. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, many of the programs that we know were created. My dating of this for the swing of the pendulum is uh, January 20, 1981, uh, when Ronald Reagan told us uh, the solution to our problem is not government. Government is the problem. Uh, and I think that this was uh, analytically mistaken. I'm a big believer that bad ideas play mm -hmm. a major role in history. Uh, ideas really count in history. And there are a lot of very bad ideas. And you document very, from that time how infrastructure investment just every, took every, a nosedive. Everything fell because we became addicted to tax cuts, mm -hmm. which is not smart because you have to pay taxes if you want infrastructure, environment, climate, decency. It's normal. We're the only country on this kind of anti-tax rant of all of the rich countries. In Sweden, you campaign, he's going to cut your taxes, I won't. And that's how you win elections, because, right. you, because uh, he's going to cut your social benefits that you love so much, and your vacation time, and your uh, parental leave time, and your, uh, all the other benefits that make Sweden the happiest place, or one of the happiest places in the world, together with its neighbors, Denmark and, and, uh, and Norway. Um, so we went on that rant, and we never got off of it. We're still in the Reagan age, actually. And Bill Clinton's trick to success was alignment with Wall Street, 
and uh, the new Democrats mm -hmm. and uh, a raft of, uh, I would say, center-right legislation throughout his term, continuing uh, to squeeze the discretionary part of our budget. Uh, President Obama, other than, a, other than this Obamacare, which uh, is, we'll talk about it, you know, it's, it I mean, you, was, you're not a fan of Obama. You, you said it's a Band-Aid on a, on a much bigger flawed issue, yeah, right? Yeah, I, mean, so. I, I, I'm all, I'm completely aghast and against it, what's being proposed now. It's just pure viciousness, but I don't think it was a great social policy. I think it was in the right direction, but not well done. Uh, but in any event, what Obama did was more important was to make permanent the Bush era tax cuts, actually. Hmm. Uh, he continued this downward line of government because basically we haven't broken out of this uh, Reagan politics. Now, what's driving it? It's fascinating. It is not public opinion. It is not the American individualism. It's not American ideology. More and more, politics is crashing against public opinion. We are not reflecting public opinion. That's why now we actually are going to zero hearings, zero discussion of politics, because we are in a complete crash between the elite politics and public opinion. And why? My view is, if I had to put it in two words, Koch brothers. Uh, if I had to put it in five words, Koch brothers and their friends. <laughs> uh, and uh, basically, we have a, we have a politics driven by money right. from the top that is disconnected from the common purpose. Let right me ask now. you a question, Jeff, about uh, the Koch brothers and the willingness you would have or not, because sometimes politics requires working with people that you wouldn't otherwise work with. And the Obama administration was working with the Koch brothers on issues like over-incarceration uh, and dealing particularly with black community and trying to say, you know, this is wrong. And the Koch brothers really almost got to the point of marshalling uh, and a number uh, of Republican supporters, Tom Cotton and others, uh, threw a wrench into that at the end. But it was, would, would, you know, would you, are you able to uh, uh, say there are times when I want to engage that powerful network to try to achieve the social ends you want? Or do you think there's a, is, is that something you avoid? Are you on the more ideological side? I, I don't think, it, I wouldn't put it that way. It's, uh, I would say that... Uh, I mean, do you acknowledge the Koch brothers, in fact, were doing something good on over-incarceration? Yes. But, but that, I don't think, justifies the kind of uh, money-driven politics that they represent. <clears throat> so with, I'm fine on issues to talk about issues. Mm -hmm. I think it's, by the way, to understand where I come from uh, on this, I view climate change threats as truly existential mm -hmm. for us. I think we're so mad. So you put those at the highest priority of well, Not the highest, but I just think we're mad. I put war as the, as right. the top. I think we're completely mad uh, at what we're doing. And, you know, I, I live, in a, I, I live in, in a milieu of scientists, and I hear from them every day what uh, recklessness we're engaged in right now. And so I, I hate uh, the inability of a country as sophisticated as ours and there's probably no more sophisticated place in the world than the United States in terms of the depth of knowledge. And I, I often say I visit colleges all over the country as part of my work. And I go to places that I've never heard of till that day, actually, such and such college in a small town. And the faculty is typically fantastic, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you just say, God, what gems. People doing wonderful work, so smart. And we have about 3,000 such institutions across the country. We don't call on them for anything right now. It's unbelievable. We have such depth of talent and knowledge, and we have created such wealth and such sophistication, and we're ready to just throw it because David and Charles Koch have oil refineries and pipelines. Well, come on. Let's grow up. We can't 
make the world run for their $100 billion of net worth. This is simple. This is not complicated. But the system is such, you watch right now what's happening on this healthcare. Okay, which ads are we gonna run in which districts in the next five days? Our politics are crazy. It's not about which white paper to analyze the problem, but who's gonna run ads the next five days? That's stupid, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna kill ourselves so, this so, way. We're really gonna kill ourselves if we don't get back to writing white papers and studies and analysis and honesty and decency. And so, no, I'm not gonna work with their network. I'm gonna work on issues, of course, but their network, go to hell. Get off of it. We don't want your money wrecking our politics. We want serious adult thinking so that we don't run the world off the rails. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's guests are Jeffrey Sachs and Steve Clemens. Sachs is a world-renowned professor of economics and a leader in sustainable development. Clemens is a national security and foreign policy contributor to MSNBC and a senior fellow at New America. Here's Clemens. So Jeff, you have um, you have been the guy that heads of state, ministers of finance, others have have reached out to when they were uh, at a dark moment and their societies were coming apart. We were talking last night about Poland, Bolivia. You're famous for sort of saving so many economies and figuring out how to do that. Uh, I, I guess if we were to say, not Jeff Sachs from the United States, but let's give you another country. Let's just say you're like this super powerful economist from, I don't know, Japan, and America is in crisis uh, and, and melting down. What would you do? Take yourself out of the equation for a minute. What do you think outside counsel uh, to rectify some of the internal, then we're gonna get to the rest of the world, but rectify some of the issues inside the United States. What would you, what would you do as an outsider that are realistic? Look, the, the US is in crisis for one, reason only. We've allowed two societies to evolve in the U.S., two disconnected societies. If you want the most obvious cleavage point, it's those with a college degree or above and those without a college degree. And these are two worlds right now, and the gap between them is widening. And technology is going to widen that gap even more. Because if you read uh, yesterday, uh, McDonald's is uh, going to uh, take another 2,000 tellers out because you don't need tellers. You need some voice-activated smart something or other to do this. Or just imagine 4 million truck drivers that are going to be replaced yeah, by auto-driving auto so and trucks. We've so. got two societies, and we're coming apart at the seams. And Donald Trump is a kind of typical, I've seen dozens of them, typical populist who blames the divisions on some phony uh, answer. Uh, and uh, populism usually ends very, very tragically. Uh, so that's what worries me uh, in this. Uh, I've been involved in lots of places around the world. I've seen this. This is not something new. Um, so. Other countries have figured out how to keep one society together. And the best examples of that, you could look at Canada as a hmm. highly uh, culturally diverse, linguistically diverse uh, country that does a lot better than we do. But explain but you, what they do. Well, what they do, we tax about 31% of GDP. They tax about 39% of GDP and they use the extra 8% to make more decency in their society, uh, that they don't cut off millions of people off of uh, public health, and they actually take care of uh, people with social support and many, many things. And the countries that do best in the world in terms of life expectancy and clean air and being nice people and six-week summer vacation and 
very happy. Our, uh, basically, Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, mm -hmm. Finland. They're all, it's a nice part of the world. Uh, we were just uh, in uh, Norway a couple of days ago. You know, everyone's got their six to eight weeks vacation. They've got their free tuition. They've got their health care. Uh, they've got their middle class. They're very, very happy. They're wondering what the hell's going on in your country, Mr. Mm -hmm. Sachs. Uh, and uh, what do they do? Well, they tax themselves a lot more than we do. And then they give everybody these benefits so it's one society. And they love it. And that's, uh, that's basically uh, the difference. Mm -hmm. We are mean. Uh, and we're saying if you're, you know, we see you kind of in our neighborhood, uh, but uh, just stay away. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is not going to work in the end. And Trump's kind of the last absurdity on this path. E either we get our act together or we really fall apart. It can't get more absurd than Trump. It can get more tragic, but it can't get more absurd. We've reached zero in terms of our capacity to think and deal with each other. Uh, and so we have to make a comeback, which I believe, right. by the way, is completely within reach. Nothing mm. special, because we lack for nothing in our country. Mm. If we wanted to make a transition to a low-carbon economy, like everything else, we are so blessed in North America with every renewable energy resource you could ever imagine. We've got wind mm. onshore and offshore, and we've got hydro, and we've, we've got solar power galore. Michael Northrup uh, from Rockefeller Brothers is a, is a world expert on this. We're looking together at how to make the transition in New York City, we could basically, we don't have to make an 80% reduction of emissions. We could go to zero uh, in New York by mid-century. We're trying to get Mayor de Blasio to move faster mm -hmm. on that. We're going to succeed, I think, because uh, he's in favor. Um, but these are completely solvable problems. But the main thing, and I'll mm -hmm. stop filibustering here, we need to do something that in America came to be called a dirty word, and that's to plan. We need to be able to plan. We don't have any part of our government that thinks ahead right now other than the Pentagon. We don't have a planning ministry. States, Jerry Brown, California. No, in the federal. Right. Yeah, we, we have one state that is doing really a lot of I mean, I don't want to throw it on Jerry Brown, but I just wanted to challenge this notion that because what you do see is a lot of planning emerging in states. No, I agree. And, yeah. and California is way ahead of the game because California as a microcosm has everything. It's got world-leading industry. Right. It's got solar. It's got everything that's needed. Uh, and so it's actually, and it's got Elon and it's got everybody sure. uh, to, to, to get this Elon done. Elon and everybody. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's got the IT. It's got uh, all the cool stuff. Right. So, so we need to plan. So, so we need to plan. We actually need a ministry of planning. Uh, we really do. Uh, doesn't mean central planning. It just means the thinking ahead. We need to think ahead. And uh, that's what we stop doing. We don't even think anymore, much less think ahead. Uh, and we've got to get to thinking ahead again systematically because you can't solve these problems mm. without... Uh, they're complex. They're, they're not simple, but they're all solvable, and, and they're not, none of them is too expensive to solve. They're just a little bit complicated so to solve. Thank you. I'm going to ask you for a short-form response for me. This is a long answer, <laughs> uh, and I want to go to the audience and get, get, get all of them in, but uh, on the global health front, you, you were, you've been also critical, you know, sort of the great need out in the, in the rest world, particularly in the developing world of what needs to happen. As I look at it sort of dispassionately, your success and, and other success in the Millennium Development Goals uh, what I've seen the Gates Foundation do, Rockefeller, uh, many in, with malaria, uh, looking at everything from mosquito nets and GSK's malaria vaccine or the Chinese malaria. You know, there's a lot of good out there that has happened to basically change that. And I've also, frankly, seen an improvement, at least in some areas in governance and more sophistication of economic planning and ministers, which is in, you know, in your wheelhouse, uh, perhaps because they were students of yours at some point. But, but I, I, I'm interested in the question of your, you, you still um, have doubts. Yesterday I met the executive director here of a wonderful woman of Merck for Mothers, and she gave me this data point that, that uh, right now, while uh, uh, 
mother mortality is, is a huge problem in the world. They're beginning to see the needle move in positive directions in developing parts of the state, particularly in, in Africa. But it's increasing in the United States uh, in certain areas. Yeah. And, and so I'm interested in what we're getting right in the world in global development and where you think the big opportunities for moving the needle next are, uh, but more short form than long form. <laughs> if you take any of the problems <clears throat> like maternal mortality or malaria or Ebola control, mm -hmm. what you have to do, you do a proper analysis. Public health is a wonderful field, very systematic. Medicine is, uh, so, uh, is very systematic. I did the best thing possible. I married an MD, MPH, mm. uh, so uh, a specialist. And in, she's here. In, she's here. And so when I need to know something, I ask her. Uh, and uh, it's such a good field that these uh, problems are amenable to analysis plus resources. That's all it takes. Mm. You need the analysis and the resources. So. 17 years ago, I asked around about AIDS, and they, my friends uh, like uh, Bruce Walker, Paul Farmer, Max Essex uh, told me, yeah, sure, we could treat people in Africa. I said, but none, none is being treated, not one person. Ah, but could be. I pressed them, are you sure, so forth. Okay, I went to Kofi Annan, and I said, we need a fund to be able to provide the financing. He asked me to work up a, a formula and, a, and an analysis, which we did. We launched a global fund and now have 18 million people alive on treatment, raising their families normally, and now the end of AIDS is within prospect. It's basic planning. It's nothing more than that. I asked the malariologists what to do. They said, well, bed nets and, and medicines. But I also found that we weren't spending anything on that. It took me seven years to convince the officialdom, which is very slow, seven years that we should give away bed nets to poor people rather than trying to sell them bed nets. Because mm. in America, the idea is uh, you got to sell poor people things. You only give rich people things, but you sell poor people <laughs> things. Uh, so finally, the breakthrough came. The bed nets were given. And now malaria deaths are down by 70%. It's basic. You know, it's not complicated. And if we had time, I could tell you how we could end the AIDS epidemic absolutely seriously for an incremental $10 billion a year. $10 billion is nothing. People here know that's nothing. Try, my business is to try to raise that. I can't raise that money. Not from Bill Gates, not from the World Bank, God help us, not from others. It's ridiculous how stupid our world is in misgovernance because people don't know, politicians don't care, and therefore the problems are connecting logical solutions with finance. That's mm. what economics is about, by the way. It's that there's nothing's for free, but you have to decide what your priorities are, how to invest, how to make systemic solutions. In our country, I can tell you, we're nuts on what we're doing now on health. I'll give you an example. We have an ongoing hepatitis C epidemic. Two million people infected, perhaps. Lots of veterans. We have a cure. The cure costs $84 to produce. If we were serious as a country, within one year, we could eliminate hepatitis C in this country. Tell them what the cost is. Instead, Gilead, if anyone's here, I'll meet you in the back afterwards. <laughs> Gilead, my least favorite company in this country, other than the Coke Industries, <laughs> charges $96,000. Actually, to be fair, for that particular dosage, $84,000 for their $84, because they own the patent and were killing Americans massively. Because in our system, if you own the patent, you get to do what you want to do. Well, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, as a well-trained, practicing 
economist that's been in this business for 45 years. That's nonsense. Patents are an insufficient public policy. They play a role, but they are absolutely not to be left on their own to leave companies like Gilead to make unbelievable profits at the expense of the deaths is of that, is that hundreds of, of thousands, yeah. perhaps hundreds of thousands of Americans. Is that and, expense window, or is that, is that window there, as I understand it, is just 12 years? That's that a they have that. No, have well, that. that goes into the 2020s. That's a 20-year 20 right. patent, and it's, I mean, it's under patent. And it's despicable mm -hmm. that we can't think straight to end a massive epidemic. And by the way, when I write this stuff, I get hate mail all over the place, as you can imagine, invariably from my neighbors on Wall Street. Because the mindset on Wall Street, Mr. Sachs, don't you understand economics? What do you expect? I, then I right. write back, people are dying. So that's the way the system works. What's happened to us? It's Aspen Ideas To Go. The Aspen Institute is expanding its podcast programming. Don't miss The Bridge, a show that puts two people together with deep knowledge and compassion for dialogue on women's rights, social justice, and more. Aspen Insight is our newest program. Join hosts Marcy Krivenin and Zach St. Louis. They take you through the halls of the Institute and introduce you to fascinating people tackling some of the world's most complex challenges. Find our shows on Apple Podcasts, just search the Aspen Institute. Now back to the show. Here's Steve Clemens of The Atlantic. Uh, and let me, let me open up. We've got microphones going around. Thank you very much, Jeff. We're going to try to, I'm going to try my best to do a, a, an idea of lightning round here. They, we'll, 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 so we're going to go a little faster, a little thinner. Uh, yes, right here in, in the front, this woman here. Hi. You talk about a two-tier society of those who go to college and those who don't. Right. I think what is very important, the ones who don't go to college are the ones who can't read. 76% of American children in urban schools are not reading on grade level. 9% in right. American urban high schools can read. So we have to address that issue if we're going to get them to college. So literacy, and I think there's literacy across a lot of firms. I want to ask about that. I also want to raise for people, because I, I like Jeff's framing on the, the, the divide, that Richard Florida has a new book out called The Urban Crisis, which frames this very similarly about looking at, and, and when you begin to look at the political ramifications of two nations that are living under one roof but acting like they're not, it's very bad. But comments on literacy real quick? You're absolutely right. And this becomes a vicious circle among the poor. And it's also bound up in mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. It's bound up in the lack of social services. It's bound up in the mistaken idea of a magic bullet to this, that if we only had charter schools or something, we'd solve this problem also. It's not a magic bullet. It's two societies that one is wealthy, affluent, and getting richer, and the other is poor and getting poorer and uh, not wanting to mix. Uh, and uh, that's what we have to, you know, we need a more general approach to this. Uh, but yeah. you're absolutely right, 100% correct. This, this gentleman right here and then over here. If a politically naive Democrat were to decide over the next two years to run for Congress or for the Senate, what would be the three top talking points that you would give to her? Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm going to parse this in just the following way. First, I think we should aim to elect decent Democrats and Republicans, uh, not just... Uh, can we beat uh, the blues with the reds or the reds with the blues? What's happened is our political system has gotten invaded mm. by the extreme uh, Ayn Rand, bizarro world. Uh, and uh, I want the Republicans to heal themselves also. So I want to work for good Republican candidates, uh, not the ones that are beholden to this uh, crazy, crazy, vicious ideology. Now, what I think we need is a set of shared goals, first of all. And I'm going to be making some proposals uh, to, uh, in, the, in the next uh, weeks, actually, about that. Uh, we need to say we're going to bring poverty down. We're going to ensure 
universal access mm -hmm. to quality education. We're going to take care of climate change. Uh, so a few goals. I want people on both parties to endorse these goals, not necessarily the methods, but the goals, because these are monitorable, they can be measured, and we can track our progress. And so even if the parties differ about the specific ways, at least we can, we can recreate a consensus about what we're aiming for. Uh, oh, sorry. sorry. The great thing I'll say about Jeff Sachs is that if you read his op-eds and if you come up to me, I'll send you the email where I have a list of 20 links. Each one of them has three points that he's emphasizing have to be done. Uh, and they're very, very clear when we do that. But yes, sir, right and, here. And then yeah. to final thing, I think we need brave, I would say especially young people to mm -hmm. run for Congress, not taking any big donations at all. And I think we need a social media massive effort. That's where I would give the support mm -hmm. so that people have a base of support without becoming beholden to special interests. Because we're not going to get the election laws changed as the first step. These are pure protect right. the incumbency laws. What we need to do is use our new social capacity to get out there and win elections without the big money. And I think that's completely possible. Yes, sir. So if we've seen a Schlesinger big cycle the last 35 years where our system is somewhat clearly unraveled, uh, icing on the cake, uh, Citizens United, how do you unravel that in less than 35 years? How do you create a more robust response? A progressive cycle. Yeah. yeah one thing for sure, things are going to change fast in this country. We're not stuck in a status quo right now. In fact, the world is changing incredibly fast. China's now the leading economy. Uh, diplomacy is changing dramatically. Uh, the global order is changing dramatically. Technology is changing dramatically. Don't be confused. We're not stuck. So we've got to actually learn to ride this wave fast. And I think that we're going to see big change. But my particular angle on this is that we ought to mark a place on the horizon where we want to head. And what to define what a decent America in this fast-changing world would look like, and then make the politics work towards that. Can I ask you just a quick question about the Times? And I want to mention the Rockefeller Foundation for a minute. But during the Nazi period when the Nazis were coming to power uh, in Europe and they were incrementally coming to power, one of the things you saw, and I want to pay the Rockefeller Foundation a great deal of respect for this, is you saw academics lose their jobs and eventually uh, were killed in various places. The Rockefeller Foundation had public health uh, leads in various parts around the world, but particularly here, and they were reporting back that they were worried a lot about the people they saw, some of the great intellectual lights, John uh, Levi-Strauss and, and others that, that were there. There was a, a philosopher named Mark Bloch who was killed uh, in France, um, executed. And, and when you went in, I saw an institution, the Rockefeller Foundation, because I went into their archives, they were at pains to figure out what to do because they were a public health promoting organization in the world. They were not a place designed to save scholars and figure out how to bring them back. And so they, had, they, they engaged and they, they changed on a dime and they figured we need to find a way to save this, these intellectual stars. And it was very painful because they had to come up with criteria with who they tried to save and who, who, who didn't make the cut. And I'm interested in that kind of stress today when you look at places like Syria, Iraq, the, the global stresses around the world that we're seeing. And this question about institutions, because you're, you're a smart person. A lot of what you're calling for requires institutions to change course and to think differently. And there are very few examples that I know of where institutions do change course, and they go through that internal introspection and, and try and do this. And so I know this is a wonky question, but it's so important, and I did see the foundation in the 1930s do this in an incredibly, not in a very widely acknowledged way, but it was important. What do you think needs to happen inside institutions to make them make some of the leaps that you think are important? It's a great, uh, great question. Uh, God, these all, I talk too long, I know, I apologize. Uh, but uh, they provoke uh, lots of uh, thoughts about this. Let me say a word about But the, it's a way to make it real, Let, let me right? say the word yeah. about the Rockefeller Foundation for a moment, which I've studied at uh, considerable length for for decades, actually. From a period, 
it's, it does wonderful things now, let me be clear. But for a period from 1913 to the 1970s, the Rockefeller Foundation hit one grand slam after another of complete world-changing significance that is simply unbelievable. I don't know of another organization that has that track record. From hookworm, yellow fever, supporting quantum mechanics, supporting intellectual refugees, uh, stopping uh, Anopheles Gambi from invading South America, the Green Revolution, unbelievable. I mean, every one of these, one of them would justify the foundation, but there was a series, one after another, after another, after another, after another. What did they do? They had a style that no foundation, even the Rockefeller Foundation, doesn't have anymore. They would have a lead intellectual entrepreneur come to the foundation, say, we have an idea. And they'd say, oh, by the way, they invented clinical medicine training, public health, the whole shebang. Some intellectual leader would come and say, I have an idea. What's your idea? So-and-so, big idea. They'd study it carefully, maybe have a commission study, is that a good idea? If they decided they wanted to support that idea, they would end up giving, typically that individual, a huge amount of money. Say, okay, go do it. Well, what's the paperwork? What's the timeline? What's the accountables? What are the deliverables? No, 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 no. You go do it. We don't govern you. You're the leader. You go do it. That was the style. And so it was backing winners. And they had an uncanny capacity to pick important issues and people who could get the job done, whether it was Hutchins or Flexner or, uh, or uh, countless, unbelievable list of Nobel laureate uh, that they basically enabled to do the work. And now we do something completely different. Uh, I know, because I write lots of grant proposals, uh, the foundation asks you, uh, okay, in the fourth year, you said you're going to do such and such. How many copies are you going to print of your report in the fourth year? And I once yelled at a project officer who asked me that question. I said, that's four years from now. How the hell do I possibly know? And she explained, well, I have to write something in the box here uh, about this. So if you want to do big ideas, you need to go for it, to support them, to understand that they need nurturing. And this is what VC is, but it should be VC for the public good. This is what we need, is big venture capital for the public good. Most of the time, big organizations can't do this. And one of the virtues of a market economy, by the way, is that big old dinosaurs go out of business and new young businesses become the future dinosaurs, but by taking over the market. But in public space, you don't have that. So the question is, how do you keep alive the dynamism in the public space? And it's a very, very difficult problem. And I'm very concerned, for example, with the UN, which I love. And I devote a huge amount of my time to the United Nations. I believe it's vital for world survival. But it needs a lot more dynamism than it has right now. It needs new organizational capacity. It needs to reflect the fact that the world leaders are not the US, UK, France, Russia, uh, and uh, China mm. alone, the P5. We have a new, new structure of the world. Uh, Asia is much more important. This was a North Atlantic institution. Now we need an Asia institution, mm -hmm. much more Asia-based, and on and on and on. So we need that kind of dynamism. Again, my <clears throat> approach to this has always been Choose your problems well. Poverty, ending child mortality, climate change, those are the ones I like. I think they're existential. I think they're really important. Then analyze what needs to be done. Then look at where the barriers are. The barriers are lack of thinking, the Koch brothers, this mm -hmm. and that, sometimes politics, sometimes confusion, sometimes expertise is missing, mm -hmm. sometimes R&D needs to be done. So that's where the cross-disciplinarity right. comes in, that the problem 
defines the nature of the approach. And so you need to fashion the approach. And my feeling is we're in a dangerous, unstable world, so we need to be even better at this, of looking ahead and understanding what our problems are and how they can be solved. And what I find most powerful is this one idea I keep coming back to, at least get people to share the sense of the goal. Right. And that's why when Trump pulls out of Paris, I can't describe my revulsion Dis at that. It's not even distress. <laughs> Back it's, to distress. It's the, yeah. are you such an idiot, is my feeling? Do you know nothing? Which is, the answer is, I know nothing uh, from the president. He knows nothing. I feel sorry for him. He's got the wrong job. Go retire. Get out of there. But well, this is really dangerous for us because we have a global agreement on an existential challenge. Let's get on with solving the problem, right. not with denying it. Jeff, thank you. I want to say, you know, here we are at Aspen Ideas, and Jeff just shared with us a scaffolding and structure and framing for thinking about the power of ideas, entrepreneurship, uh, identifying a problem, and identifying resources to apply to it. Um, and, I, and I asked that question in a way because it occurred to me that you might be, you know, it's, it's too much to give one foundation the responsibility for all of these things, but the kinds of things Rockefeller did today within its universe, you're trying to do now with a much broader set of plans. So I want to pay tribute to that. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and we're going to end that there because I can't figure, you know, find a better way to end than the power of ideas and trying to lead uh, the world through. So big round of applause for Jeff Sachs. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Jeffrey Sachs is the author of The End of Poverty, Commonwealth, Economics for a Crowded Planet, and The Age of Sustainable Development. The Economist named Sachs one of the world's three most influential living economists. Steve Clemens is editor-in-chief of Atlantic Live. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.